Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory with your host, uh, Dave O'Brien from City University, London. This week we'll be talking to Tony Bennett, who is a research professor in social and cultural theory in the Institute for Culture and Society at the University of Western Sydney, about his new book, Making Culture, Changing Society. So I'm delighted to be talking with uh, Professor Tony Bennett, um, who is a research professor in social and cultural theory in the Institute for, Cultural, uh, Institute for Culture and Society in the University of Western Sydney. And we're going to talk about his new book, Making Culture, Changing Society, which is a book that I think um, comes out of a much sort of longer um, engagement with questions of culture and questions of society. So just, just to begin with, um, could you tell me a bit about sort of the circumstances that brought you to write the book, particularly how some of your earlier work has, has kind of influenced the writing of the text? Uh, well, it's a book, I suppose, in which I've tried to pull together ideas <coughs> thoughts that I've been working with over the last probably eight to nine years. Um, and certainly it builds, upon, uh, it builds upon earlier work. So to give a picture of that, let me give a let me just say a little, a little bit about myself. My work's always been focused on the relationships between cultural studies, cultural sociology. I'm comfortable with, with either term, but within whichever term you use. My work has, has had, I guess, for the last 20 years, some fairly consistent foci. One, I've been very interested in the work of Foucault and the implications of Foucault's work for cultural analysis, in spite of or perhaps because of the fact that this is something about which Foucault himself has very little to say directly. He doesn't have a theory of culture as such. Uh, but his work, I think, is very uh, full of implications for cultural analysis, particularly in contemporary societies. That's been allied with a long-standing interest in the work of uh, Pierre Bourdieu. Um, and both of those interests have come together in different ways, at different points in time, around questions of cultural policy. Albeit, albeit in, in, in very different ways. My interest in Foucault's work from the point of view of questions of culture and policy or cultural policy has to do very much with trying to think through the implications of his perspective of governmentality and the implications of that for cultural analysis. Whereas my interest in Bourdieu's work for questions of cultural policy is a more direct and easier one to follow in many ways because it has to do with theories of cultural capital and policy issues to do with the relationship between cultural policies, cultural funding, the reproduction of class differences, relations of gender, power, and ethnicity, and so on. And those two interests have been on my mind for um, uh, the past 15 to 20 years, I guess, allied with a third area of interest, which has been, I suppose, the empirical, one of the empirical domains in which I've tried to think through some of the intersections of the Foucaultian and Bourdieu theory, which has to do with the role of cultural institutions, and particularly museums and art galleries. 
uh, specifically modern governmental institutions, but also institutions that are tied up with deeply implicated in processes of legitimation and class reproduction and so on. Um, and where does this relate to your own uh, sort of particular career trajectory? Because, um, I mean, I, I work in the same field um, as, as you write in. And, um, I know your work as someone who's worked in both uh, the British context in terms of engaging with uh, debates about, as you say, Bourdieuian uh, cultural uh, sociology. Um, and yeah. I know your work through someone who's been influential in the Australian context and the kind of uh, the emergence of a particularly Australian form of cultural studies applied to policy, and then also in the American context of uh, someone who's tried to drive uh, the debates within cultural policy towards being uh, kind of, I guess, uh, Foucauldian and policy relevant yeah. and critical. So where does that sort of, the, those three, I guess, uh, global lives uh, sort of fit in terms of what you're doing now in, um, in Sydney? Well, a funny summary of my career, but I actually started my career in adult education in the university sector, working initially in an extramural department of the University of Bristol as a staff tutor in sociology, uh, but then uh, linked to my PhD work, which is on the study called Georg Lukács, and strongly interested in cultural questions. Uh, and I moved from uh, working in the extramural department at the University of Bristol to a position in the Open University in its very early years, not the earliest years, but two or three years after the Open University started, and when it was a, a typical educational institution, all very new, all extremely exciting. And I, I worked there for a number of years in the 70s and into the early 80s. And it was at that point in time that I became very much involved in the debates in British cultural studies. And... I was not myself a member of the Birmingham School, but I worked closely with people from the Birmingham School, particularly at Stuart Hawking at the Open University, and I was involved in sharing the production of a course on popular culture. So my interests at that point in time were around aesthetic theory, questions of literary theory was the area in which I first published. My first book was called Formalism and Marxism, a book on the relationship between formalism and Marxist aesthetics in the early 20th century. Um, followed by a book on uh, the, the political career of James Bond as a popular hero that I co-wrote with Jenny Woolen, which was a question of popular culture was central to my concerns. And then for a whole series of both personal and professional and institutional reasons, I moved to work at Kiffey University in Australia, in, uh, in Brisbane in Australia in 1983. And uh, that was a very significant and interesting move for me in many ways partly because it introduced me to a different purple than the purple that was available in most British debates at that point in time, but also because it gave me a different perspective on some of the foundational assumptions of British cultural studies, which I became and still am increasingly sceptical of. Um, it was also working in Australia uh, in the period of what was the, the Hawke and Keating governments in the 1980s to into the mid-1990s, uh, a very kind of like exciting, exciting, buoyant period in Australian political and intellectual life. Um, that I acquired paradoxically my interest in museums, partly because Australia was a society at that point in time where the past was being built before your very eyes. Uh, it was a major period of national museum construction. So um, I became extremely interested in questions of museum history and theory. Uh, 
This resulted in a book called The Burford Museum, which I published in the mid-90s, which was, in essence, a book to try to take Foucault's concepts of knowledge and power and apply them to a critical history, a critical genealogy, if you like, of the modern Western Museum. And at the same time, I developed an interest in cultural policy, setting up an institute for cultural policy studies at Griffith University and later moving on as the director of what was called the Australian Research Council funded Key Centre for Cultural and Media Policy. It was a policy across three universities, Griffith University, University of Queensland, and University of Technology. So my interest in cultural policy, where as I indicated earlier, they were the, they were the practical ones of the present, and I was particularly interested in distributional questions, uh, approaching those through the lens of cultural capital theory, but also in the nitty-gritty questions of museum, museum politics and policies in the context of indigenous issues and multicultural issues in 1980s, 1990s in Australia. Uh, but I was also then deeply interested in what were the implications of Foucault's work for how to rethink the concept of culture, really. What different take does that give you? Foucault's work give you on the concept of culture from the functions of British cultural studies, and which was linked into particular history of the cultural left, it was linked into particular notions of power and resistance to power. And I found that the lens of governmentality that Foucault proposed uh, a very helpful one to begin to pr provide a different sort of history of the relationship between culture and society, ones which stressed the respects in which culture had always been deeply implicated in processes of governance and could not be simply thought of as a site of kind of like of, of expressions of social interest, independently of the ways in which government was enlisted, various forms of governmental objectives having to do with the shaping of conduct of populations. So, just to continue with the career trajectory, um, I moved back to Britain to work at the Open University uh, again in uh, the late uh, 1990s. And a large part of my time at the Open University, particularly in my last six or seven years there, was spent working with colleagues at the University of Manchester, Mike Savage, whom you will know, I think, a colleague of yours at York. Uh, subsequently, uh, Carol Williams is one of, uh, and myself, is one of the three founding directors of the Economic and Social Research Council Center, uh, funded center on sociocultural research. And in the context of that center, I continued work in these two areas of interest that I've outlined. First, uh, the interest in Bourdieu, which developed in a uh, uh, a large-scale project that I convened, but together with a number of colleagues, Elizabeth Silver at the Open University, Mike Savage and Alan Ward at the University of Manchester, on a project on cultural capital and social exclusion that developed into a major, that was conceived and developed into a major engagement with Bourdieu's work. I've done this before in a different context, working in a project that was convened by my colleague at the University of Queensland at the time, John Crowe, and Mike Ennison, a project on Australian everyday cultures that resulted in a book called um, Counting for Tastes. That was the first book, really. Uh, well, it, it was definitely the first book uh, after Bourdieu's distinction to apply a national survey that was modelled on but departed from 
Borgia's questionnaire in distinction in order to engage with a different society, Australian society, some 20 to 30 years earlier, and a society in which multicultural questions and indigenous issues couldn't be ignored, so a quite different society from 1960s France. Doing a similar project in 1990s Britain was um, closer to some of the domain, you know, society, society that was closer to some of the domain assumptions that informed Borgia's work in as much as it was European, it was a mature nation-state, and so on and so forth. Nonetheless, at a time when uh, many people who were still, as I am, immensely respectful of and, and, and grateful to Borgia for the work that he did, but also finding kind of like, um, you know, many questions that you wanted to ask that his work couldn't give you a direct answer to. So that project developed into a major engagement with Borgia's work, subsequently published in a book called Culture Class Distinction. So, um, so I, I was guess it's interesting because um, I associate your work with that kind of Foucauldian uh, governmentality. Um, but from what you said there, it's quite clear that Bourdieu um, has been very influential as both um, a sort of direct influence, but also someone to kind of engage with and critique. And that's one of the things that uh, I think was embedded in the end of making culture changing society as a kind of uh, the question of, of Bourdieu for culture. Um, and it might be interesting to, to start there with the book in thinking about um, the core critical theoretical influences that were underpinning the text. And in, in my reading or my understanding, you have the kind of Foucauldian line of thinking. There's an engagement with Bourdieu and particularly Bourdieu's relationship with Kant. But there's also uh, the emergence of more recently um, I suppose popular or interesting critical theory around questions of materiality, assemblages and the sort of Deleuzean and actor network theory ideas that have come out of French social science so as a kind of beginning point on making culture changing society, could you tell me how those three sets of theory kind of interact um, and, and produce the, the core aims of the book um, well, that's a complicated question. I mean, they <laughs> yes, were, it is. Sorry. Yes. No, no, that's quite, that's quite all right. There were and still are issues that were, uh, you know, current at the time. What I mean to say by that is Bourdieu's work was in the 1990s and still is a very active and influential body of work. And it allowed you to do various things empirically and theoretically that you can't do with, with other bodies of theory. It's difficult, for example, to think of anything you could find in Foucault that would allow you to construct a questionnaire. No, very much so, yes. Yeah. You find many things in Foucault that would allow you to think critically about the, the history of statistics and their social mobilisation and application. And including, you find many things in Bourdieu that would allow you to think critically about the history of cultural capital statistics and the ways in which they form a part of a particular set of governmental apparatuses and procedures and interests that you wouldn't find both in the same way in Bourdieu's work. Nonetheless, if you're interested in cultural analysis, Bourdieu gives you a kind of a tradition of analysis that's engaged in the history of the base of the sociology of literature. It's got sophisticated procedures for dealing with um, questionnaire design, empirical analysis. I mean, you know, Bourdieu is deeply empirical in ways that are admirable. It's a body of theory that allows you to connect um, qualitative work, you know, ethnographic work and quantitative work in ways that are very difficult to do just from a straightforward Foucauldian optic. 
But the spirit of the show, having said all of that, is that I would, if um, if pushed, I'd want to, I would want to pin my theoretical colours personally much more to a Foucauldian mask than to a Bourdieuian one. Um, because, uh, partly because I think that it gives you a, um, gives you a critical focus on some things that Bourdieu's a little bit kind of like close to or blind to. And one of those is actually the role of Kant, I think. Uh, many people think of Bourdieu because of his uh, his discussions of Kant at the end of um, at the end of distinction, and his account of the aesthetic ethos of disinterestedness and his critique of its association with um, uh, you know elite practices of consumption. Think of Bourdieu as a anti-Kantian thinker, but that's a very superficial interpretation. Nothing very premature scholars of Bourdieu would think that he's a deeply Kantian thinker. Um, and his whole sort of like political and ethical program is governed by a wish to sort of like make culture available to everyone so that they could consume it mm, in a, yeah. proper, a proper Kantian mode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's quite explicit about this at some points in time. So to come back to you know your, your question about uh, a point of entry into the book, I conclude the book with a. Uh, a chapter that's on the, on the topic of habit and habitus. Um, it's a chapter in which I engage with Bourdieu's work, and uh, I describe him as one amongst the whole series of, of historical, historically constituted what I call authorities of freedom. And in calling him a, an authority of freedom, and this is where I'm drawing on Foucault's work to try to place Bourdieu in theoretical terms that derive from outside his own corpus. And those theoretical terms derive for me from Foucault, and I'll just say two or three things uh, about what I try to take from Foucault and then come back to what you, if that's okay, is that all right? Yeah, yeah, that'd be really interesting, thanks. So the two or three things that I take from Foucault in terms of cultural analysis are, I mentioned earlier that you'll, you'll search high and low for an extended discussion of culture in Foucault's work, you won't find it, and the most you'll find is a page or two even there. But that that page or two, which I think is just in one place as it happens, is a very interesting one in which he says, um, you know, let's suppose we were to develop a theory of culture, then he more or less says, well, not that I really want to do this, I'm really quite unhappy with the concept, but let's suppose you know, we were to do it. And he then outlines two or three things that you need to do if you were going to have a theory of culture. And well, two or three things include saying that we have to think about the relationship of knowledge practices to culture. We have to think about the relationship of particular kinds of authorities to culture and the, and the forms of power and authority that um, particular knowledge practices in the cultural sphere exercise. And he also says we have to think about these operating relationship to um, you know, the organization of various kinds of inequalities or, or asymmetries of power. The thing that I wanted to take from him is he has to say, he says, if you're going to talk about culture, you have to think about it as a particular practice of the truth. So that's point one. Point two, then, that I take from Foucault is uh, in another book, in his book on um, biopolitics, I forget the exact title now. Uh, um, it's where it's a book in which he talks about liberal government and outlines his uh, conception of liberal government 
And the key thing that he has to say about liberal government, and it's where he distinguishes it from liberalism, while recognizing that the two intersect, he says that where liberalism is a form of sort of like political reasoning, which if you like, it starts from the assumption that freedom is something pre-given, that it's there, it's a right, and it stands opposed to government. Foucault says, no, freedom is something that government makes up. Mm, yeah. We're talking about liberal government. It's something that governmental authorities of various kinds make up and exercise. Freedom's not a given, it's something that's produced, it's distributed, it's distributed unevenly. Um, it's made up as a vehicle for the exercise of a particular kind of, and this is the next point, modern power. Um, so, putting those two points together, the code you notice to cultural analysis is to speak, speak of it as a particular practice of the truth. It exercises particular forms of authority. And if a distinctive form of modern government is that of liberal government, which makes up and distributes various kinds of freedom as that through which it exerts its power, that through which it shares conduct. And the next step for me is to say, well, uh, what the practices of the truth are uh, peculiar to culture? What kind of ways of governing and organizing freedom has the concept of culture been implicated in the course of its history? And what are these who are these authorities of freedom? How do they exercise? And of course, when you look at it in that way, the whole discourse of culture from Kant through to, through to Bourdieu is absolutely littered with the concept of freedom. Mm. Um, but uh, littered, is not a, littered is not the best word. It's absolutely full of the concept of freedom. But it's also implicated in those debates in which freedom is something that is it's not available to everyone. There are certain conditions that you have to kind of like uh, comply with in order to exercise it. Um, so it's it's seeing it's, it's seeing the debates around culture as having been tied up within practices of the truth that are implicated in liberal forms of government, and it is to look at, and this is where it is to look at uh, people like Bourdieu, but also I would want to say, let's say, to bring this closer to a home for a British leadership, but also I'd also want to look at Raymond Williams or Hogger. Stuart in the same way and say, what forms of freedom do these authorities produce? How do they exercise it? What forms of power are associated with uh, these kinds of practices of the truth that are part and parcel of the history of cultural studies? And what, well, we'll just accept it on its own words. What's interesting there is, in theoretical terms, that would be more than enough um, for... Uh, you know, quite a kind of detailed and, and dense book project. But you also have this kind of concern with the material and materiality to kind of supplement um, those other theoretical influences. So I wonder if you could say a bit about where that sort of material turn um, figures and, and why it is you've, you've engaged with that. I think the material figure turn, why I've engaged with it has to do with the fact that um, so far I've talked about, if you like, in discussing group of practices of the truth, authorities of freedom and so on. You can deal with this purely at the level of a history of ideas, and I don't call concept discourse analysis. Um, and that's important, and uh, I think that the work that is performed by particular concepts of culture is an important issue to attend to, and I can come back on that later with some subsequent work that I'm doing, if you like. But of course, those concepts of culture never work 
or I put into the world entirely as abstraction, that history is always tied up with and entangled in the history of material apparatuses. There's nothing new in saying that, you know, I mean, if, one were, if one were talking about Althusser and ideological state apparatuses, there's a kind of an insistence upon the institutional inscription of practices there. But I think that since then, and in, in, the, in the 90s in particular, the work that's come out of science studies, um, in the tradition of Latour and Woolgar, the work that's come out of Postalosian tendencies in cultural economy debates around debates about sandwiches, agencements, and so on and so forth, give us a whole new set of vocabularies for thinking about um, uh, the ways in which discourse is always materially embedded in concrete apparatuses uh, in terms of how it is active uh, within the world. And equally, the, the in particular, the work of science studies has made us think about the ways in which new objects and entities are produced within particular kind of life settings, like laboratories and so on and so forth. So I've been an extension of that argument from science studies concerned with, well, I, uh, it's in part an analogy, but I think it's got a little bit more than just um, uh, a reason by analogy going for it. Wanting to look at the ways in which particular forms of uh, culture, notions of culture, are made up, are produced, and put into circulation in context, through contexts like museums or recording studios, whose mechanisms we should look at in similar ways to the ways in which science studies has looked at the production of new actors in laboratories, etc. Um, so that's one reason for doing it. Another reason for Another reason for drawing on those um, arguments and ideas would be one is that their force has become um, uh, they are, there have been I think since the mid-1990s a very clearly discernible set of new arguments and perspectives that have been making the running in new debates in the social sciences and humanities, making the running about how to think about the relationship between human and non-human actors, making the running in a critique of, um, you know, an excessively humanist approach. Um, for example, you know, if you, if you read the texts of uh, cultural studies, the foundational texts of cultural studies, etc., they're entirely humanist. There's no, there's no place in them for the, the analysis of non-human actors that we find in post-human debates. But also more locally and immediately, you can also see the ways in which the work of people like Latour was chiseling away at the Bourdieu apparatus from within, in many ways. Uh, they were raising questions within French intellectual theory that were, I think, unanswered from within the purely Bourdieuian tendency within French intellectual theory. So I suppose the short answer to your question is, is it, it seemed to me that the material term as uh, title that Patrick Joyce and I used in the book that we, we co-edited, Material Powers, yeah. uh, History, Culture, Studies and the Material Term. So this term was a powerful one and a productive one that was bringing new sorts of um, problems into focus and that it had considerable scope for cultural analysis and for historical analysis, uh, which was a, uh, a, you know, two areas of interest that Patrick, and I, Patrick Joyce and I brought together and worked together on productively. Um, over a number of years. 
but it, it's very interesting actually that um, the combination I think of, of those theoretical uh, lineages plays out in the book to answer um, four particular arguments uh, by combining the theoretical discussion with uh, very material um, examples, particularly from from museums. And I wonder if we could talk around two points. The, the first is, and you've alluded to this uh, already, um, are the four core arguments in the book around culture as a set of knowledge practices, the politics of culture, culture's relationship to liberalism, and culture's role in being a sort of productive um, of particular uh, senses of personhood, um, and then perhaps move on to how that plays out in material terms. So to begin with, if you could talk me through those four core arguments that the book uh, is making. Uh, okay, can you, go, can you go back to the four by one for me, and then I'll come back on them. Oh, so, sorry, you, you faded away slightly there. Oh, sorry, I moved, I moved away from the microphone. Can you just remind me, if, if we go through them one by one, then I'll talk about them one by one. Yeah, of course. So um, the four core arguments that you set out in the introduction to the book um, are that culture is uh, a set of knowledge practices um, and can be understood what you call uh, through what you call the culture complex. Yeah. Okay, so by, by the knowledge practices there, I mean, uh, um, I, I have been, by and large, the book focuses upon two knowledge practices. Um, it focuses upon anthropology, uh, and it focuses upon aesthetics, which I interpret as two knowledge practices that, whose history um, has been closely associated with the development of liberal forms of government, whereby we have to remember in that context that liberal forms of government for Foucault means encompasses the boundary line between liberal and the liberal forms of government, by which I mean to say is that for him, Liberal, liberal governance, where mechanisms of governance choose to operate freely through uh, operate through mechanisms of freedom. These are always counterbalanced by, for different constituencies, forms of government that operate through coercion, through the denial of freedom, through its limitation, through the exclusion of freedom to particular categories of the population. So, book explores the history of anthropology as a liberal discipline in that sense, and the role that it has played historically particularly in connection with the histories of colonialism, in drawing boundary lines between populations that are to be governed as though their subjects were, as though they consisted of free subjects, and populations that are denied those freedoms. And focusing in particular there upon the history of uh, the relationship between anthropology, um, liberal government in uh, in settler colonial societies like Australia. All right, so that's one point of focus. Second has to do with the history of aesthetics. Um, and um, I draw a long historical bow here, building upon a scholarship of, in particular, people like Mary Cooby, who have traced the historical associations between the development of aesthetics as a special form of cognition. Uh, its development in the 17th, late 17th, uh, late 16th, early 17th centuries, in uh, sorry, late 17th, early 18th centuries in Britain, its development as a form of liberal government, which thought to govern people through the ways in which they would 
monitor and inspect their own conduct through their relationship to these settings and become freely self-governing as opposed to being subject to the arbitrary rule of the church or uh, the monarchical system. So there are many respects in which the kind of associations that Google is concerned with regarding the development of liberal government as a set of associations between practices of the truth that work through the organization and distribution of freedom, these in a sense have their, their earliest paradigm in the development of aesthetics. And I then argue in the book, perhaps a little bit controversially, about the ways in which the subsequent development of Kantian aesthetics that was developed through a critical engagement with the civic humanist aesthetics of uh, that were developed in England in the period after the Glorious Revolution, ways in which Kantian aesthetic, by producing and securing, uh, much more than was the case earlier on, a degree of conceptual autonomy for the aesthetic, actually provided the conditions for the multiplication of the governmental uses of aesthetics in association with the history of liberal government. There are two lines of argument going through the book, so far as knowledge practices are concerned, with trying to trace the history of the different ways in which these two, kind of like liberal disciplines, anthropology and aesthetics, have been tangled up with the exercise of forms of power that work through the production and distribution of freedom so that some populations are constituted and um, related to the governmental practices that respect the freedom and autonomy of individuals and seek to make them self-reforming, and other practices of government which deny capacity for freedom and autonomy and self-government to individuals and operate upon them, to borrow an old Althusserian phrase, operate upon them behind their backs by manipulating their new years in ways that do not, do not depend upon their, their will, their volition, their consent or anything of the kind. And this, this, I think, is the moment that uh, sort of crosses over into the other, the other three core arguments, because in order to understand the operation um, of those uh, sort of disciplinary traditions, you need the, uh, the second argument around um, the material aspects um, of, of these um, operations. Well, exactly. It is... Um, it's... Well, it's vital to see that there is a history of concepts and theories and arguments going on here. It's equally vital to see that these practices of government are deeply entangled, tangled up with the histories of different material apparatuses. So, for example, the whole history of um, uh, you know, post-Kantian, pre-Kantian, post-Kantian history of Bildung was a kind of like a reformatory practice of the self in the, uh, you know, derived from German conceptions of culture, post-Kantian conceptions of culture. This doesn't work just at the level of ideas. It's entirely tangled up in material histories of concerts, or pianos in the bourgeois home, or particular conceptions of the art gallery, or particular ways of collecting art and uh, distributing it, and so on and so forth. Just as equally, to provide a different sort of example, just as equally to take a negative case, and it's one that I discuss in the book, the kind of historical connections between the development in early 20th century Australia of uh, field collecting practices that are auspiced by anthropologists like Sir Baldwin Spencer from the National Museum of Victoria. Baldwin Spencer was a person whose work was behind the kind of um, 
theorization of primitive religion proposed by Durkheim. However, that's part of the There's a deeper material history through which Baldwin Spencer goes into Central Australia, uh, collecting all sorts of artifacts, uh, film recordings, sound recordings from the Arunka people of Central Australia, taking these back to the National Museum of uh, Victoria, codifying them, organizing them, making sense of them in evolutionary terms. Of these, this material ordering of things uh, and images, photographs, and so on within his museological practice, then get re-exported back to the Aboriginal people of Australia through practices of administration that tear them apart, literally tear them apart. Um, there's a very strong connection between the material history of collecting from Aborigines, the material history of museums, and colonial context of ordering indigenous cultural materials, and um, then the administrative history of, as it was conceived at the time, of um, managing indigenous peoples to extinction. And, and these are simultaneously conceptual and material histories. And, and you have the, the comparison with um, the Musée de l'Homme in Paris, um, and yeah. the, the way that these um, se- seemingly kind of uh, potentially Anglo- Anglo-Saxon sets of practices actually play out in the French context as well. Yeah. Well, actually, thanks for raising the Musée de Lomme, because that's, that, for me, is a, a, has been a really good and interesting case, and where I found the concept of assemblage quite helpful. Um, because... Uh, the reason I found it, the Musée de Lens is an incredibly interesting institution. It was formed in, 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 in Paris in the course of the 1930s. I say in the course of the 1930s, it's a somewhat odd institution, and most of its influential work was done in the 10, the ten years prior to its official opening, um, between 1928, when it was sort of like conceived, and 1938, when it was opened. The years of its gestation are the ones in which it was most interesting. And what was interesting about it for me was it was, uh, it was a place in which two different kinds of like assemblages came together, colonial assemblages and assemblages of public pedagogy uh, within France. So this is an institution that faces out to France's overseas colonies, particularly in inaugurating uh, what's arguably the first sort of like significant phase in French overseas um, anthropological fieldwork the Kajibuti exhibition and, and others of its kind, um, it is a place, uh, it is a central calculation to which there are brought back from these fieldwork exhibitions all of the kind of photographs, index cards, artifacts and so on and so forth that are collected. And it was in its, in its structure and its organization, it was conceived as a place that, as it were, brought two sets of relations together at the same time. It was to be a place wherein um, the, uh, the collections from the fieldwork expeditions were to be arranged as a part of a kind of a liberal public pedagogy in France that was to induct the French citizenry into a more plural and tolerant conception of other cultures, and particularly the other cultures of greater France, the France that included um, France's overseas colonies. 
But at the same time, it was a place where there were to be laboratories and libraries and so on, where specialists would go, where training anthropologists would go, in order to learn, in order to work out ways of ordering uh, the material, materials collected in um, from fieldwork context, in ways that would be useful to projects of colonial administration. So I found the concept of assemblage very helpful in thinking about museums as being institutions that are always kind of, or certain kinds of museums, at any rate, that are always poised at the intersections of two networks of relations, two sets of assemblages, particularly for anthropological museums, in terms of how they face their publics and how they face their colonial subjects. Uh, and the Musée de Bonn, really, it's a fascinating site at the intersection of these um, complexly interweaving sets of relationships. Now, potentially in the text, I think, um, that there's a sort of uh, pessimism uh, with regard to the kind of the operation of freedom, um, the uh, function of particular disciplines, and the role of institutions that um, we might see as being kind of representations uh, of liberal ideologies, which actually are in that kind of almost Althusserian sense, enslaving or, or, or you know, kind of all-encompassing. And, and I wonder in the text uh, where you might find a kind of an optimistic note, uh, where there might be the potential to kind of challenge or overturn these um, forms of kind of uh, liberal domination almost that come through these assemblages of power. I uh, I'm interested that you see it as pessimistic. I'm sorry, I don't see it that way myself uh, personally. I see it as perhaps being a little skeptical. Uh, and I've always wanted in the work that I've done to take um, uh, to, to take the position of um, that dish for the among which I would include, include myself. Mm, yeah. I want to take their positions and say, well, we have to interrogate these and look at what's going on here a little bit and not take it entirely on trust. So I've always been interested in the ways in which aesthetic form has informed perspectives along the left and cultural theory. And I've always been, I've always been deeply interested in it. I've always been deeply skeptical of it. Um, because I don't think that it's an innocent, it's an entirely innocent practice. It's, it's a practice that um, sorry, describe me as a innocence the wrong innocence the wrong word. I think the practices, left-wing practices that take on board the legacy of aesthetics and seek to reflect them in a left-wing direction, as is certainly true of the work of people like Raymond Williams, as it is true of the work like Bourdieu, I think there are certain sedimented sets of assumptions that go along with that kind of intellectual endeavor that we need to be careful of and look at critically. It doesn't mean to say, however, that because I think that um, Bourdieu's practice, for example, is tied up in a notion of, um, uh, you know, if we can get beyond the operations of cultural capital, if we can make all cultural institutions operate as he would have had them do in accordance with the best traditions of, of French universalist republicanism and make the best that has been uh, no one thought to sort of switch to our Nobian terminology. Equally available to everyone because it equips everyone with the, it equips everyone with the capacities to, to appropriate high culture in a truly in a truly fancy and disinterested fashion. 
that is what I think was the, the, the kind of historical coordinates in many aspects of what was correct. A, I don't think it will ever happen. B, I don't think it will happen anything particularly good will come of it. C, uh, uh, it just seems to me extremely unlikely that that would happen. C, it over-invests what's at stake uh, in the kind of like the history of the It takes upon trust. It manifests a remarkable degree of a lack of skepticism with regard to the ways in which aesthetics uh, is, is exercised in the present as a form of authority of freedom. That's the term that I used to it in the book. I refer to aesthetics as a locus for the exercise, a particular form, particular form of authority of freedom. That can be assessed as being productive, but it also has its dark sides. Mm-hmm. Anyone who knows anything about the history of aesthetics in relation to the history of colonialism is a, a, a tad screwy if think this is an unproblematic history. Um, yeah. But the reason that I'm not pessimistic is just to go back to your point, it's not, the book is not arguing that uh, the institutions of the culture complex, like museums, art galleries, or whatever institutions you might you know, want to bring into the picture there, it's not arguing that they are instruments of uh, kind of like a liberal hegemony, because I don't think the term hegemonic goes particularly particularly well with Foucault's account of liberal government as the exercise of particular, you know, working for freedom. I think that um, it's much more productive, I think, rather than to think of the book doesn't lay out a picture of cultural institutions giving us a hegemonic form of power that we have to struggle against. But there's some way that has to be involved to struggle against some form of uniform dominance hegemonic power, it rather says, no, if you look at the practices of cultural institutions, there is a contest going on between them, between different forms of authorities of freedom, sometimes within the same discipline, sometimes across and between disciplines, and that's possibly the case of the relationships between history and aesthetics, which have complex entanglements. And it's more a question of saying, that, no, look, and this is where uh, something I always take from Foucault's work. No, look, there are, you don't have to invent opposition or antagonism. These oppositions and antagonisms are in play in the contests and relations and disputations between the different practices of truth, the different versions of the authorities of freedom that are at work within uh, the institutions of the culture complex. So you don't have to kind of, you don't have to produce a of politics against a, a single dominant form of power ex nihilo, um, the politics of truth is always the domain of contestation. And that's all that's that's true for the politics of truth as it relates to um, you know questions of um, the role of, of culture in the construction and organization of contemporary forms of governmental power. Um, because that form of power is governmental, it doesn't mean to say it's singular. It's interesting you mentioned that kind of the idea of these contestations and governmental power. I mean, is there a particular point that you'd like uh, the book to make in terms of influencing public debates or uh, particular political policies, whether in Australia or Europe or the States or the UK or some, something like that? It's a book that's. Um, it's a book that. I see as having, it's probably stronger in terms of its theoretical arguments and the kind of long historical bow that it seeks to deploy or, or, or draw uh, than it is in terms of engagements with immediate 
uh, kind of like policy issues and context. So it's not a book from which you could draw on. I haven't sought to do so. A kind of like an immediate policy prescription for engaging with, well, how would you make, uh, you know, what would you do in order to make uh, patterns of culture more equally accessible uh, to members of a society? What would you do to move funding priorities of the Australia Council or the Arts Council in Britain? More away from the usual blah, 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 that we have to fund Popper because it's excellent. And, you know, uh, how do you move funding policies away from trying to fund stuff that very few people want but elites do because it's tied up with those kinds of relations of power? Mm. It's not a book that will give you an answer to those sorts of questions, but I think that it is a book that will allow one to see sort of historical connections between the ways in which culture is implicated in forms of governance in the past and the ways in which it is implicated in forms of governance in the present. So that, for example, I'll just give a couple of examples, they're quite contrasting ones in a way. Um, uh, while my arguments in the book focus upon, historically upon, the ways in which aesthetics and anthropology have been implicated in the development of modern governmental practices in the, in the, in the early 20th centuries. I also make connections between those and the development of tolerance in relationship to debates around cultural diversity as a contemporary form of governmental practice. And so that it is, and I'm not the first to say this by any means, it's a it, it's a perspective that gives you a critical leverage on contemporary cultural policy discourses that are taken, uh, cultural policy discourses or more general discourses that are, that are taken to be simply kind of like benign or that are, are regarded as hooray words rather than boo words. So that there's, there's a good literature on the history of tolerance and the ways in which tolerance is tied up precisely with forms of governmental power that have to do with producing and distributing freedom and doing so in ways that are uh, problematic. Another kind of like past present par parallel in terms of um, the ways in which the history of liberal government in producing and organizing freedom simultaneously denies them, but limits their distribution, limits who can take part in them, has to do with the parallels in Australia between the uh, developed for the government of uh, Australia's indigenous peoples in the past and those that obtain in the present. But there are very clear historical continuities uh, between the forms for administration that were developed for uh, indigenous peoples as a result of, or not as a result of this, putting the point too strongly. But in, in relationship to forms of knowledge practices that I discuss in the book associated with anthropology, early 20th century, Ball and Spencer, and the development of a series of um, moving Aboriginal people away from their lands, putting them on reserves where they were subject to uh, coercive forms of government that depended upon entirely upon their exclusion from the uh, liberal democratic political system of the formative nation of Australia from it for 40 or 50 years. But still, the legacies of that and the debates that go on, not just the debate, but the practices that go on in Australia in what was called the Northern uh, Territory Intervention that was introduced under the John Howard Coalition Government, uh, but also continued under the Labour Government that's just now been 
automatic fire by return of a coalition government. Basically, what this says is um, for uh, many Aboriginal people in Australia, particularly those living in the military, but not exclusively so, that their lives are governed in ways that would, are not true for other Australians. Uh, so that it includes things like complete prohibition of alcohol, it includes things like um, uh, where family benefits or other social benefits are paid, they're paid in tied ways, so that they have to be spent in particular ways and not other ways. There are all sorts of ways in which Indigenous Australians, particularly the set of remote areas, in particular communities, uh, are ways in which their lives are subject to uh, forms of directive administration by the state and ways that are not true for any other members of the Australian population. The most deeply interesting about this is this is uh, this is a matter of profound division amongst Indigenous Australians themselves. So there are significant Aboriginal intellectuals who support this precisely on the grounds of it leading to a responsibilisation of uh, Aboriginal people that they see as being um, potential for their future economic development, just as it is opposed by uh, other Indigenous intellectuals as being an unwarranted interference with and the freedom and, and respect and integrity of um, Australian Aborigines. So these debates are not recondite, they're not abstract, they're not theoretical, they have um, a deep and pertinent and deep pertinence to the present. And it's precisely that sort of space, I think, that um, the historical and critical theoretical perspectives in the book can, uh, can fill, because uh, it's a very very interesting take on, um, as you say, both uh, left and perhaps more uh, right-wing kinds of uh, common-sense opinions about things like freedom, the museum, um, and aesthetics. I mean, I've, I've taken up quite a bit of your time discussing the book. Uh, just to kind of conclude, I'm wondering um, where next for your work in terms of... I mean, the book does sort of conclude with some uh, useful possible next steps, particularly in terms of thinking um, about the possibilities of uh, popular culture um, as a site for, for analysis. Um, but are you kind of continuing in that vein, or will you be doing something completely different um, in, in the next sort of year, two years or so? Um, no, I can't be doing anything completely different. I mean, the work that I'm doing at the moment is um, uh, continuous you know, the trajectories of my work over the last, um, whatever it was, period I described, 15 to 20 years. And there are discernible connections with the, the work, uh, the arguments in making culture change in society. I'll just briefly summarise a couple of them. One is, um, I mentioned that in my take upon thinking about culture as a set of particular practices of the truth, I focused upon anthropology and aesthetics in the arguments of making culture change in society. By and large, however, the book deals with these separately from one another. And I've since become deeply interested in the connection between them, particularly in regard to the, um, the concept of culture as a way of life, which is a concept that's been uh, was foundational to the project of British cultural studies. Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, 
It's actually a project, not just in the British cultural studies, but also in the American cultural studies. It's been by and large taken on trust. No one's really kind of like looked too much at where it came from. It came from anthropology. Uh, in the Just So stories of cultural studies, it came from E.B. Tyler, the late 19th century anthropology. But when I looked into more closely, that, that doesn't hold water really. There's very little connection between what Tyler had to say about culture as a way of life and the way in which it's been used subsequently. The ways in which it's been used subsequently has been deeply informed by the history of the culture concept in the American tradition of anthropology that followed off from the work of Franz Bass in the early 20th century through into the work of Margaret Mead. And I've been working at, I've been working on that in the context of a, another project I'm engaged in with a lot of people. Uh, of team people. But what's interesting about it from the point of view of the concerns of making culture change in society is that it's absolutely impossible to write the history of the anthropo- this, the, the history, this, the history of this anthropological con- concept of culture, the Brazilian tradition, as though it was something remote from or different from or, or unaffected by the history of aesthetics. Mm. Clearly, in this history, uh, which is a, you know, a 20 to 30 year history in America, the aesthetic and the anthropological concepts of culture deeply inform one another. And many American anthropologists have realized this, people like George Stocking, and many American literary studies scholars have realized this. But it's kind of like implications for the records and concerns of culture studies are not been thought about. So that's one project that I'm working on. And I'm particularly interested in it because it's clear that, it's clear to me at any rate, that the, the ways in which the aesthetic and the anthropological concepts of culture operate mean that the concept of culture as a way of life is um, deeply implicated in the, in the development of early American, of the governance of early American forms of multiculturalism, in ways in which its aesthetic aspects were central to those governmental projects. That's one set of issues that I'm working on at the moment. Uh, the other is still an engagement with Bourdieu, and this is in the context of. Um, a project I'll be working on together with a, a, a team of people, this will be a team of 10 people, some of them colleagues of mine at the University of Western Sydney, some of them colleagues at the University of Queensland, and some of them colleagues in the, in the States and in Chile. A project that's called Australian Cultural Fields, National and Transnational Dynamics, which is another kind of critical engagement with Bourdieu, which has at the one hand, it has an immediate uh, cultural, set of cultural policy references. One of the reasons that I first got interested in questions of cultural policy had to do with a, a, state, a cultural policy statement that was issued in Australia in 1994. It was called Creative Nation. Mm. This was a, yeah. um, a very influential cultural policy statement. It was a progressive cultural policy statement. It was saying that our cultural policy in Australia, it has to be about culture for all Australians, not just for the elites. It has to be responsive to the dynamics of multicultural Australia. It has to deal with questions of the um, cultural presence and interests of indigenous Australians. And um, a year ago, the then Labour government put out another cultural policy statement called Creative Australia. Yeah. And anyway, this team, we've we, we secured funding from the Australian Research Council, quite, quite good funding, uh, to look at how the dynamics of Australian culture have changed between these two cultural policy periods over a 25-year period. How have the dynamics of cultural production and distribution in Australia changed in the light of, of 
the changing multicultural composition of the Australian population in the light of the increased role of um, you know, digitization processes in the production and distribution of culture. In the light of the considerably increased over the intervening period, the considerably increased presence that indigenous culture operates in relationship to mainstream uh, culture within Australia. Uh, so we're looking at these we're looking at these changes over that uh, twenty to thirty year historical period, but in the process also wanting to pose a set of larger questions for uh, Bourdieu's field theory. Bourdieu's field theory is, is a kind of literary, it's a kind of cultural fields, is by and large principle, his accounts of the literary and art fields in late nineteenth century France. That's to say, uh, upon literary, upon cultural fields that were developed in uh, a European context, in the context of nation states that had at that point in time a clear kind of um, clear presence. Um, in societies in which uh, questions of multiculturalism are not particularly um, posed, um, but also uh, in uh, uh, you know France, if I can put this, where France was a colonial power, it was not uh, it was not a colonized territory, and it yeah. was not subject to the dynamics of settler colonialism. So the longer historical term question we want to ask is what the reasons are need, needed to feel theory. It's not a question of throwing it out of the window, you understand, but what revisions are needed to it to make it more applicable to uh, a, a society that was relatively late developing as a, a, a nation and therefore in which the institutions that are necessary to kind of like constitute autonomous national cultural fields didn't exist until considerably later. But also, What's, what's at stake in applying them in a separate colonial context, in particular in a separate colonial context in which the question of the relationship between the uh, settlers and the indigenous populations is and remains an ongoing process of taught, difficult, um, interesting, dynamic cultural negotiation. And there is no, these questions are not by and large too much in the history of field theory. That sounds absolutely. Yes, that's that's something. I, those, those are two things that I'll be working on for sure. And, and both sound absolutely fascinating in terms of that engagement with both the kind of practical political questions of the present, but also uh, the kind of uh, academic theory that might underpin uh, how you do analysis, which. To return us to where we started, I guess, is a, is a very kind of uh, Foucauldian way of thinking about how we might do politics and how we might talk um, about contemporary uh, social, political and economic life. So uh, thanks very much um, for taking the time to talk to me about making culture, changing society. So you've been listening to David O'Brien from City University of London talking to Professor Tony Bennett from the University of Western Sydney about his new book, Making Culture, Changing Society, as part of new books in critical theory. See you next time. Thanks for listening.